Hello and welcome to Molding Masculinity. I'm Tom here with Philip as always. And today we're going to talk about uh, gender in the career fields. Uh, I think both Philip and I work in fields that are traditionally gendered. Uh, for me, it's been food service. Uh, and, and then Philip, uh, uh, if you want to divulge your career field. Yeah, I've mentioned it before. I'm a computer programmer and do um, <clears throat> web development specifically. But yeah, just generally IT, um, software development, that kind of thing. Cool. I hadn't forgotten what it was. I just, it, it's one of those fields where I feel like um, a lot of a lot of people un, like umbrella it as you're a programmer, right? And it's like, well, it can be more complicated than that. It's actually a, so I didn't want to umbrella yeah, you. <laughs> I, I, uh, I uh, exist in a constant world of feeling like I'm, I'm inevitably uh, my, the, the way that my job works is that, uh, you know, computers are uh, sort of the definition of a pedantic thing uh, to down to uh <laughs> Like if you don't do exactly the the way that they, you know, are opinionated to think, then like it doesn't work. So uh, your brain gets into this like space of like constantly noting like subtle uh, distinctions of things that seem to be equivalent but are actually slightly different. Uh, and then uh, the problem is, and that translated back into regular life, uh, people are get annoyed with how pedantic you are sometimes, even when uh, you're trying to do it as a joke. So. I've learned to be defensive about that and uh, <laughs> um, try to explicitly not care about that. But yeah, it's like uh, commonly people will be like, oh, so you work in IT. And it's like, well, technically, you know, like, I, I don't say this anymore, but you know, it used to be a thing. It's like, well, technically IT is like a different thing. It's more like uh, tech support, computer help, device integration, stuff like that. Whereas like, I actually like develop the software, the code. It's like a, it's a subtle distinction. But then, like people just like look at me, like, why would I care about that? <laughs> and so I've learned to just say, like, yeah, sure, IT, that's fine. That's that just gave me a lot of insight, though, to like a lot of the online online personas who are often men and are extremely pedantic online. And also seeing in my head the correlation of that with people who work in the information technology field, as yeah, it it is somewhat a product of the of the way that your brain has to work in order to not drive yourself nuts. But at the same time, I think uh, like there is a distinction between like the sections of programming culture that realize that's weird and. Uh, that it should be confined to it when dealing with technology. And then there's a segment that uh, thinks of it as like, therefore my brain is superior to yours because I can see things that are, that, that you don't see or whatever, which is shitty. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it, it's one of those things that it sure, it does explain, but I wouldn't say it excuses. Yeah. Like living in the matrix. Um but not in the matrix. You know what I mean. Um, but yeah, 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 I'm pulling us off topic. Um, but also, it, this I think has some tangential relation um, because yeah, like your field is very interestingly 
gendered and not historically gendered, and which is also something that I think um, is very common across so many career fields. And um, it, it's something that actually, so my wife is a veterinarian, and it, this was something that I uh, noticed extremely remarkably in uh, where she went to school, you know, like I, the first time I ever visited her school and she gave me a tour of the school and there's the uh, the typical hall of white men, uh, the, you know, the hallway wall that is covered in portraits of all of the graduating classes of the school. And you see where it goes at the beginning of the school in the like early 20th century and it's all white men. And then right around the 1970s, 1980s, it transitions, but not like into a 50-50 mix. It does a hard transition to all white women. Uh, and then that is really continued. And in that field, that is kind of the, uh, the way that that field is gendered. And I think a lot of other fields tend to do that in the other direction, including a lot of fields that we don't think about having done that. Um, but I think programming is definitely one that is a modern field. Yeah. Um, I looked up some numbers around this um, that are interesting, which is uh, slightly dated, but uh, still highly relevant. Um, it hasn't uh, gotten tons better in, in seven years, but in 2014, 70% of the employees at the top tech companies uh, in Silicon Valley were male. Uh, and uh, in some individual instances, like as low as 10% of the workforce was female in the technical side, um, which is really interesting for computers for a variety of reasons. Um, but if you look at the history of people graduating with computer science degrees, um, they were approaching parity in the 70s and early 80s. Um, in 1984, 37% of computer science graduates were women. Um, but then they began to drop dramatically in the mid 80s. And uh, in 2016, that number was down to 18%, uh, being more or less fully cut in half, um, which is wild to me, um, especially since um, as someone who, you know, when I got that degree, um, you know, some the, at least my school required certain history classes to go along with that some specialized history classes about the history of technology and stuff like that uh one of the things one of the, some one of the things that you notice is a lot of the early sort of celebrities or significant names in the field of computer science are women i believe that the uh i'm, I'm looking it up right now uh grace hopper was one of the first programmers of the harvard mark one um and she was really into um, the theory of machine independent programming languages, uh, which we now call cross cross platform programming languages. Um, and she created the programming language COBOL, which is still in use today, although it is, uh, you know, been kind of on its way out for a while now. Um, it still persists in a lot of like legacy applications and stuff like that. But she was um, huge. And a lot of the early computer stuff was women, partially because um, it, dealing with computers, the early computers, 
were seen as um, secretarial. <laughs> Um, they were devices for a secretary to use. And so programming became a thing for the women to do. And it was uh, like kind of eschewed off of to women. It wasn't until like uh, a lot of women made some of these big strides in programming languages and really like um, made some, some strides to show the power of these computing machines that it started to be like, oh, okay, well, let's go ahead and take this and make it a full-on program and all that stuff that it started to get male dominated. Um, and male focused as a result um, that was paired with then in the mid 80s a big marketing push uh, to for the personal computer the home computer which was largely um, some degree of like word processing used, especially in some offices um, but uh, particularly legal offices but um, for the most part, it was a toy. It was a thing to play games on. And those games were extremely geared toward uh, boys and young young men. Uh, and so then there becomes this like cultural thing of like, oh, computers are for boys. And um, it just kind of snowballed from there until we take a thing that's, you know, was approaching a sort of like natural 50-50 sort of, or I should, a natural approximately 50 50 at least close to even uh, balance and just completely went through the floor uh, over the course of the past few decades um, which is just so 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 weird to me um, but yeah that, so that's kind of the the rough history of like obviously there's a whole lot that I am skimming over and skipping over in the details of um, there were lots of people who contributed lots of things uh, both men and women to the history of computer science but um you know obviously in an hour-long podcast format we're only gonna be able to sort of like skim the surface but i definitely encourage people who are interested in it to go check it out there's a lot of really interesting um interesting people um and interesting cultural stuff around um the early years of computers yeah, and I mean, in, in that there's a pattern there that we see in so many industries. I see in so many industries that I've been related to or involved with. Uh, one of those being psychology. Psychology is just like a similar, as I talked about with veterinary school or veterinary medicine, I should say. Of psychology was a very male-dominated thing all the way up until the seventies or eighties, and now it is incredibly uh, uh, female-dominated. Um, similarly, uh, one that's more historic and less academic, because I mean, like, also, one of the things that bugs me with psychology and with veterinary medicine is there's this kind of a um, story that we tell ourselves that it's because women are more compassionate, so they are naturally more predisposed to those to those fields, uh, which is completely ignoring the realities that people within those fields talk about. One of those being that your compassion is often um, a hindrance in those fields more than it is. I mean, it's not saying that like it, you're bad at those fields if you're compassionate, but it's uh, the idea of like women are just naturally more compassionate and like targeted towards those fields, I think is flawed for a lot of reasons but i'm, I'm, I'm getting, getting off into the weeds here there are also industries that we don't think of in that direction that are also 
historically gen, uh, g- gender like gendered and that gender has switched. One of those that I found most interesting to learn about was as I uh, kind of as a hobby dove more into uh, nautical history and the histories that we have involving seafaring and ocean stuff is how a lot of uh, textile industry began with uh, sailmakers who were at work at sea and came to shore, uh, often at the end of large naval engagements that required massive amounts of naval efforts that then, once that war was over, all of those people had no jobs because there was no more need for them at sea, uh, started opening up things that they could do at shore. And one of those things was sailmakers turning around and then making textiles. Uh, this was extremely male-dominated because of uh, a large Western cultural tendency to only send men to sea. Uh, so you see this male-dominated textile industry switch during the Industrial Revolution to being more female-dominated. Not because of any thing that was changing with the workers, but because uh, things were changing with the exploitation of workers. It was easier to... I mean, the, the same reason we put children into textile mills during the Industrial Revolution, because they were small and could get into the machines and... Uh, um, but yeah, I mean, it's so you see this kind of a gender switch there, and it has nothing to do with uh, one gender being better at something than the other gender. Yeah, and some of them are active products of, um, you know, cultural prejudice. For example, um, nursing is infamously female-dominated, but that's partially because, and obviously with any particular culture, why it is the way it is is multifaceted and nuanced, but like a huge part of the reason that nursing is so female dominated is because for a good long while, women couldn't be doctors. They wouldn't get accepted into med schools on the basis of their sex. So like if you wanted to be in the medicine and you cared about like taking care of people medically and that's the thing and you really wanted to do that and you were a woman, your only option was to become a nurse. And so uh, and, and at some point, like these things kind of metastasize into sort of cultural artifacts where a bunch of women become nurses because they can't become doctors. And then the cultural perception that nursing is for women. And then now women, you know, men filter themselves out of nursing. Uh, women filter themselves into nursing a lot of times. And um, you end up with this um this weird uh, thing where it's like very heavily gendered, but on a basis of a reason that no longer exists other than its historical continued perpetuation based on the fact that it's true. And those things tend to perpetuate themselves because if a field is already like 90% women and uh, a male tries to join that field, there is definitely a feeling of hostility i mean you can find lots of stories of men who try to get into nursing who are like actively bullied by the fact that they're like a man in a women's field and all that stuff uh, and you know the same the same way that a lot of times women get bullied for going into it saying like what are you doing here you're a girl you know like the the same thing happens to uh men that go into nursing and stuff like that and you know it's it's it has this interesting additional side effect, which is that uh, now that women can become doctors, a lot of the women who are you know, like 
who can become doctors will. Whereas before there were a bunch of nurses that were good enough to become doctors, but then had to be nurses. And so now you have this problem where we need like, uh, it's heavily gendered, but also a lot of the like best candidates for that are people that would just be doctors that are just doctors now. And so you end up with this thing where like, we need, we have like kind of a shortage of nurses and there's a lot of like quality of care of, you know, reduction of nurses and stuff that is, I'd have to go look up numbers to this to, to see how, how real that is. But, uh, there's certainly a feeling of like this weird metastasization of gendered expectations in a career that were previously just the product of an existing prejudice that then goes away, but then the, pers- the, the social environment makes it so that it just can't break out of that cycle. Yeah, and I mean, like my current field exists in a certain state of this, uh, and that is in food service. Like, uh, Seventy percent. Data shows that seventy percent of chefs are men. Only about twenty nine percent of chefs are women. Uh, but at the same time, in the food service industry, sixty percent of the food service industry is women. This is the, that one's according to an amusingly named, even though I've ran into this multiple times in the industry, the NRA, the National Restaurant Association. <laughs> 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 but uh yeah i mean and it's and, and this is something that you run into constantly in the field the back of house is always men the front of house is always women the front of house outnumbers the back of house and there's no reason for that gender discrepancy there's nothing about working in the back of house uh as a chef or as a line cook or as a prep cook nothing about that is like better for men to be in that industry than women like and and in in a specific angle of this is that outside of the professional field yeah we expect (laughs) women to fill that role but the moment that women want to get paid for that role we frown on that as a society and now we have kind of yeah recently in recent years we've became more accepting to women going into the back of house side of food service but that environment is still there and it is so very toxic and there's and it's specifically the back of house food service environment is aggressively toxic just to any fucking buddy who wants to enter it um and we have this traditionalist outlook of like well this is just what it's like to work in back of house i mean uh, i talked in this podcast before about how at my last job we had a sexual harassment issue and that sexual harassment issue was repeatedly put off by our director as uh well that's just how working in a food service environment is these young women who are here are going to have to get used to that and that was such bullshit like no in the 70s that's how it was and nobody in the 70s should have just gotten used to that or been expected to just get used to that and i don't i'm not going to expect you know my people today to do that and that's that perpetuation of a societal kind of thing is kind of like part of that but not the whole of that it's but yeah i mean yeah like in 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 food service there is such an element to that that is yeah like it is part of that that i find very amusing from a masculinity standpoint is that outside of my profession when people learn that i know how to cook and like know how to cook well 
I get a reaction of like, wow, not very many men know how to cook. That's so cool of you. You know how to cook. Man, you must have an easy time in the, you know, like, you know, with in the dating scene before when I was single or whatever. It's all this like positive stuff about like, man, no men, no men know how to cook. But 70% of chefs are men. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's silly. Like, and I want to, to hop back to uh, something that always, always baffles me about the reaction of um, it's just like that. You got to get used to it. All that stuff like this is such a weird argument to me because like taken back to earlier moments in history like it's such a such an empty thing to say and and like like uh you know you see uh you'd be able to see like the existence of slavery right as something that has existed for a long time and then be like oh well you know slavery's been around for a while they should just get used to it this is how it is some people get enslaved and that's their lot in life like it's like it's such a stupid argument because it can justify literally anything as long as it's prolific enough like and it completely disregards so so like essentially it's an ad populum fallacy uh disguised as sounding legitimate which is that most people believe this therefore it's okay which is just not true and then additionally it ignores the the potential for escalation like whatever negative toxic thing is normalized is just flat okay to do like if you think that there's a hard line there where people just stop and don't progress any further and like here's the okay thing and here's the not okay thing and we don't do anything over this line like, that's not true wherever you draw the line there's bleed uh and so like if you want to draw the line if, if, if your goal is to not have people sexually assaulted in a workplace you can't draw the line at only sexual assault is banned because everything up to that will be okay and then like someone will cross the line like like you need to make it so that crossing the line is sort of like you get slapped down way before it escalates to the point of like a real traumatic harm and, and so like I always like get completely baffled by by the uh, it's just like that people need to get used to it thing because it essentializes this environment into an industry or into a place of some kind in which like it may not be essential to that like oftentimes like the the sort of implication here like, it's a, is that it's a it's sort of fundamentally part of this thing, but no justification is given to that. No one like lays down the argument of like, here's the way in which like, there is nothing we could do to, to solve this problem in the industry. There's no, like uh, we start with a, and obviously a has to be true because it's food service. And then like falling from a is B falling from B is C falling from C is D. And because of D therefore, uh, these women just need to get used to being harassed a little bit. Like that line is never drawn. There's no justification for it. It's a hand wave. It's it's a uh, what the term for this in in uh, rationality circles I think is a thought terminating terminating cliche. It's just a phrase that is like spoken like a magic wand over a conversation to just stop thought, stop criticism, stop uh, thinking about a thing, and say. Uh, just accept it and move on. Don't think about this. And like that, 
uh, like thought terminating cliches always like really bother me because like I want to be like no hey hold on no <laughs> you don't get to do that you have to answer this question this is important uh and and the that's one of the ones that that really bothers me a lot because I see a lot of shitty things justified by being like it's just like that as if like it's inherent to the universe that women get harassed in food service jobs like it's 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 almost it's almost funny in this and only in the sense of like if you imagine something so petty being written into the laws of the universe it it seems kind of funny it's like god wrote in the sky and women shall be harassed by the male co-workers in their food service spaces like uh it's, it's obviously not funny because it's terrible thing that's happening but the idea that it would be written in the sky by god is funny to me yeah i mean like and and one of the things with 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 food service in specificity because food service is notorious for its back of house toxicity i mean we have multiple reality tv shows uh, that are dedicated to it you know whenever we talk about like somebody being a uh is it Gordon Ramsay is the yeah, super? Gordon yeah, Ramsay. yeah. When we talk about somebody being a Gordon Ramsay, like we get it. Whenever you talk about a chef, you always expect this like intense fucking asshole. And the reality of the industry, I mean, I've I've been in the food service back of house industry, uh, in in front of house, uh, for ever since I was fifteen. Um, so and I'm you know thirty two now, so over 15 years and i have worked in incredibly dysfunctional spaces where we made no money we lost money and everything was falling apart and i left because the ship was sinking and the ship sunk after i left and i've worked in places that were making millions of dollars were incredibly successful and have grown to do incredible things. We've been on ESPN. We've like, we were the catering agency of our region. And I've seen the very like obvious glaring distinction of that toxicity, that asinine jackass gordon ramsay type behavior in the kitchen existing in those dysfunctional spaces because that's what like social dysfunction is when you're yelling and screaming at the people you're working with over minor stupid bullshit that is dysfunction um and if you are operating under dysfunction if you are sexually harassing your coworkers and allowing sexual harassment to take place in the workspace if you are bullying your coworkers based on gender and sexuality if you are any of the, those things you're dis you're you're breeding dysfunction and then on the flip side of that in these places that were wildly successful we never had any of that it was calm. It was chill. We put a exerted effort into making our workspace a chill space where, yes, it was high energy. Yes, it was, um, you know, there was there was there's always in food service. There's always going to be a lot of uh, adrenaline going. It's going to be fast paced. It's, you know, booming and bustling. But we all liked each other. We hung out outside of work. We had a functional workspace relationship and our work thrived because of it. 
um, it's just a bizarrity of normalization of dysfunction where we, yeah, well, no, food service has to be a hellscape that makes anybody in it want to have abnormally high suicide rates because that's just how it is. Is ridiculous. And then when it generates you into having all-male workspaces because nobody who isn't um, brainwashed from birth to believing that uh, jackassery is normalcy can't survive in that space, it's broken. Yeah. <clears throat> it's It's really interesting. I wonder, like... I wonder what function it serves. You know what I mean? Like a lot of this stuff, like it's some, it could just be that it's like metastasized in some way that it, like it exists and it's only harmful. But I wonder if there's like a, that that's a selection mechanism, right? The only people that work in this industry are people that tolerate X, right? And I wonder if there is a useful selection going on here. Uh, like, for example, I, I don't know if this is the case, I'm just speculating, but like something like, oh, okay, the only people who survive in that environment are people who serve like kowtow, who either are the kind of people that rise to the uh, top, or they are the people that just like get kowtowed into just following orders and accepting whatever, accepting abuse, accepting all that stuff. If there's like a functional like oh well it's sure convenient to have a workforce that is like psychologically disposed to um just sort of like being put down and humiliated and um domineered and like all this stuff such that like you can enforce un like ridiculous working conditions on people uh to um you know, allow for, you know, completely ridiculous, like unreasonable demands on your workforce without having to worry about them sort of like fighting back or creating a union or any of that stuff. Well, and yeah, and I think you kind of get at it there. Um, and I'm, this is purely my own opinion. This is my own, I'm not pulling this from data. This is just my own experience in the industry and why I really loathe, a lot of why I loathe this whole uh, environment attitude. Uh, because I also have observed in close proximity uh, at, at times in my life uh, domestic abuse. And I see the same patterns existing in it. Uh, it come, I, I believe that it comes from the same sort of insecurity and manipulation. Um, a lot of the workplaces I've been in that have been the most abusive and in this sort of way, they are, along with this type of abuse, manipulative um, and psychologically manipulative um, to the, 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 and with a drive to convince you that Nobody else would have no other. Nobody else would take you. Nobody else wants you. You are an unwanted, a terrible worker. You are garbage. You are the worst thing ever. And even if they would want you, they're going to be worse than I even am because this is just how it is. This is just how the industry is. You're going to have to get used to this anywhere you go. It's going to be just like this. Anywhere you go is worse than this is. And 
like I guess it's mostly those those two things kind of working together in various forms. And uh, that's it, it's it's about maintaining workers when you know that you aren't going to be able to pay workers. You don't think you can keep people honestly, so you try to keep people dishonestly. When you try to keep people dishonestly, you it, you move into the, those categories. And then when that combines with the stress and uh, pressures that come with trying to do that and with just being a shitty human being, um, you end up with... I think that's the function. The function is the manipulation and abuse of workers to keep them from leaving. I mean, I've seen this time and time again. Like when I worked at a, I, I worked at a, and I'm not saying all Brahms are like this. When worked, when, actually, no, both. So when I worked at Taco Bell, I've talked before about the kind of stuff that was uh, sexualist harassment stuff and things that was going on at Taco Bell. When I left there was a moment of our, a, a repeated moment of our store manager telling us all that we weren't good enough to go anywhere else. Nobody else would have us. We were insufficient for them. Um, and then leaving and realizing that like we were plenty fine, well-trained. It was like unrealistic expectations and stuff that were being put on us. And it, life changed so much for the better after we left that place. Uh, and then similarly, later on, I worked at a Brahms and had an abusive manager there who would convince people that they should. I, I saw them convince coworkers of mine to drop out of college because they might become a Brahms manager someday. And that's better than anything you're going to get out of spending all your money in college. And it was just a way of manipulating them to stay in the system and be recirculated oh, through the abuse. And it. I, I witnessed this with a friend of mine who had the same experience with Starbucks. They just kept dangling this, like, like he was like uh, in this horrible poverty trap and he had a lot of things go wrong uh, that were just like a lot of unfortunate stuff that really couldn't have done anything about. And he ends up, you know, with a master's in communication working at Starbucks and they're just constantly dangling oh, you'll get your own store, you'll become a manager, you'll have career growth, all that stuff, but you just got to like wait a little bit, wait a little bit, wait a little bit. Uh, and, and they just dangle that in front of him for fucking years. And like, they drilled it into him. It took like, like active intervention, but like with like me and several friends uh, to really just like sit down, but they are lying to you. They're doing this so that you'll stay, so they can continue to extract a little bit out of you, so they don't have to find someone else, so that, like, all kinds of stuff. They're not going to do it. You, like, you see too much of their bullshit for them to want to promote you. You'd have to be, like, waving the Starbucks flag above your car to for them to think that you were indoctrinated enough to actually be someone they would be willing to put in a leadership position like and the people that are in charge of you who are telling you this stuff or dangling to you they are those people they're the people who are so indoctrinated into that thing that they will do anything say anything for the benefit of their corporate overlords or whatever because that's how they got that position in the first place and it was like it was really rough. It was a hard, hard lie to sort of like tease out because when you are trapped, like when you're in like a nasty poverty trap, like when you are desperate and you're just hoping that something will just go right for you for once so that you can stop 
you know, relying on the goodwill of your friends living in someone's basement or whatever to like, uh, try to get back on your feet. And someone just keeps dangling this beautiful, like stable job carrot in front of you, man. It was wild how much he gave to that, to that organization and the hopes that they would give him a management position and never did. Um, yeah, he, I mean, every job he interviewed for, you know, while he was working there, he was he would try to make it so that he could continue working at Starbucks in the hopes that like it was wild. Uh, it, it probably cost him some degree of like opportun- professional opportunity. Definitely. I've, I've seen this. Yeah, I've seen that exact thing play out so many times in the workplace. I, I really think that there is a direct um parallel to domestic abuse and the reasons and mechanisms of it and a lot of workplace abuse that takes place and specifically uh, toward women in uh, traditionally male workplaces and of course to non-binary and trans folks in literally any workplace Um, because everywhere is a toxic workplace to them. Uh, for them um and that 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 is a whole yeah and yeah i mean this is once again another episode that boils down to it's capitalism capitalism is the problem the profit motive is the problem this week's episode of capitalism is the problem like abuse (laughs) is the profit motive and yeah it makes them money to abuse you because it keeps you from leaving um and keeps you from leaving it keeps you from organizing yes specifically because if you really do feel like you're just like worthless and not that good like uh there's a the feeling that like everyone else around you isn't receiving that when they are because you don't see it because they hide it and then you go like oh everyone else is good it's just me i'm bad i'm the weak link here all that stuff and then like you know, you don't talk to other people about how that happens and you're just trying to tolerate it and get through the day and get through your shift. And then no one ever like sits down in a circle with 10 of their other coworkers that goes, Hey, we shouldn't put up with this. Um, it's, yeah. it serves a very helpful function in that way. Yeah. And I mean, and a big part of that is dividing up workplaces and food service. And, you know, me and you have talked outside of this podcast, I think, before about how hard it is to organize food service workplaces and union organizing. And so much of that is by design. And one of those designs is how divided food service workplaces are, both between front, front of house blames back of house for everything, back of house blames front of house. In the back of house, it's always morning shift's fault. If you're on morning shift, it's always evening shift's fault. If if you're a prep cook, it's the line cook's fault. If you're a line cook, it's the prep cook's fault. If you're a chef, it's the sous chef's fault. If you're a sous chef, it's the chef's fault. It's fucking everybody's fault except for the goddamn restaurant manager. And it's designed that way. The, the workspace is horrendously divided. Um, and hilarious, like every person who goes into the food service industry for the first time when they're like 15, uh, is astounded by how ridiculously clicky it is. Um, and that's by design. It's impossible to organize because everybody is pointing the finger at each other. Um, instead of realizing that the problem is that the boss is asking for things that aren't possible and is traumatizing the workforce into doing things that is unreasonable you know it's interesting i've actually seen this in my field as well um in this 
and it's not it's not quite as pronounced. Um, there's a lot of like um, positive corporatism stuff that goes on in programmer space of like, look how good and how nice we treat our employees because we give them lots of amenities. Um, asterisk. Um, but <clears throat> you know, still there there is very much a sense in most jobs that I've had. I've worked at a handful of places that actively saw this and fought against it and they were fantastic to work for even when the work was very intense. And they were, uh, but, but a lot of times there's this feeling of like things inevitably go wrong. At some point a demand is brought forward, a deadline is missed, something happens where maybe the expectation was wrong, maybe something got screwed up, maybe it didn't work, but like it became a when that happened, who is the scapegoat? Whose fault is it? Who do we finger point at? And I still remember um, the first time I ever worked at a place where it wasn't like that. We had a bad thing happen and it was, um, I was like ready for the finger pointing game, you know, like uh, thinking of like, you know, all the things that I did that I could prove that I did what I was supposed to do at the right time in the right place. And everyone sat down and the, the, the manager of the engineering team like sat in the room. He's like, all right, so we missed our deadline. That's not great. I want us to brainstorm right now and think about what process can we improve to try to ensure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again. Uh, that's going to include a diagnosis of the problem. We're going to figure out like, was the demand unreasonable? Should we have pushed back a lot sooner? Um, did we have a lot of like consistent underestimating of how long things would take so that we were making bad promises. Like, like, what is it? Let's figure out like what happened, what we agreed to that caused this failure to happen. And let's figure out a process that we can implement so that we don't make that mistake again in the future. And what wasn't in the conversation, what was not on the table to discuss was whose fault it was. And it was like this moment of like, huh, and I didn't like even realize it at the time until much later reflecting on it of like, what a huge like weight off my shoulders that was. Because like even then in the future, when deadlines got tight and it wasn't clear if we were gonna make it, there wasn't this feeling of like, if I'm, if this is looking like it's gonna miss, I need to start documenting, need to start being able to prove that it wasn't my fault, like any of that, like none of that time that then compounds the failure. <laughs> had to be spent because I knew at the end of the day, if we missed, it was going to be a conversation about like, how can we improve this process going forward? Not whose fault is it and who is going to get crucified on the altar of, of, uh, you know, justifying the business's demands, um, regardless of whether or not they were reasonable. And it was like a huge moment for me. And it really shined a light on how on how uh, competitive dynamics can really like like we talk a lot about like competition in the sense of like markets and that's fine and all like there's a whole criticism of course of market dynamics but i think they like it has its place or whatever um but man like seeing that in a workplace among coworkers, like over and over again and just thinking like well this is you know it's 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 a job it's a corporation it's competitive that's how it is you know it's cutthroat and you know 
you got to prove that you never do anything wrong. So you get the management position and to like work at a place that just had culturally made itself such that it wasn't like that it was just like this huge breath of fresh air. Um, so I don't know, like that, I guess I say all that to say like, ultimately it doesn't have to be that way. Um, but I certainly do think that the profit motive um, incentivizes it to become that way for the reasons that we have already discussed. Yep. So I think the best advice I can give this uh, this week for this episode is to uh, destroy the system and kill your masters. <laughs> <laughs> no gods, no kings, burn it all down. Uh, revolution. Uh, like, uh, I mean, I think that like, I, th I think in real practical terms, like, you know, like, um, there's a, there's a famous thing that goes around the internet. Sometimes it's like the narcissist prayer. That's like, that didn't happen. And if it did, it wasn't that bad. And if it was, that's not a big deal. And if it is, that's not my fault. And if it was, I didn't mean it. And if I did, you deserved it. And a lot of workplaces operate like this. They, treat their employees they create an environment that no one even has to often the managers are <laughs> because they are the sort of like moments point of contact between the employees and the owners or the business right uh but a lot of times it's an environmentally structured to deliver this message whether or not anyone individually does and i think the thing to take away from this is that it's not just you you don't deserve it. That's not what's happening. And if you feel this way, I can almost guarantee a lot of other people do too. And you should talk to them yes. and see what you want to do about it together. There are structures for this. A hundred percent. And in going into like agreeing with you completely and then going into our, also our core uh, um, thesis for this episode um in your workspace whether it be male dominated um uh, female dominated or cis or as almost every workspace is cisgendered dominated be the person who is kind and makes other people feel welcome in the workspace and use that as a um, example to others and push that example to others. When you see unkindness in the workspace, correct it. Um, be aggressively kind. Um, the world needs more of it. Um, like it, work fucking sucks for everybody. Our jobs are terrible. Capitalism is a shit show. And do your goddamned best every day to make sure that everything you contribute to it makes it better for everybody else going through it. I think that's something important on just the everyday, the survival tactic, uh, the the you know how to get through every day. Um, I, I think that's important, and I think that also breaks down a lot of the toxicity that keeps people out of um, predominant workspaces, whatever that predominance may be. Um, the thing that makes it impossible for people to break into spaces is because those spaces are really toxic and mean to them. So be, be the, the, 
the stone in the flow of the river that isn't that to people. Uh, and, and then use that bit to push all of your coworkers to be better. And and then when you're the kind, friendly, nice person in the workspace that people like and gravitate to and enjoy being around, organize those motherfuckers and tear it down. <laughs> <laughs> or make it a co-op. <laughs> or Ideally, make it a don't burn down a restaurant. <laughs> yeah, a lot of people <laughs> like that place. Yeah, don't burn down your restaurant. I'm, I'm, I'm joking with the, but yeah, I mean, like, it, yeah, really, like guillotine memes, but, <laughs> but I mean, like, um, I, I'm serious about like the kindness, not not about the burning down, the kindness. You know, it, it's yeah, it, 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 so this is something that I really try to tell myself in the in the food service industry, which I have recently re-entered. I've been in it almost my whole adult life. I left it because I wanted to go do uh, the things that I was told were more productive and better, and then I've been like, I know food service better, I want to do this, and I'm back in it. And and it got really tough for a bit um, because it is, like, not... like. Um, because of all of the things we've talked about, but also because of, you know, elements of it that are the industry, which is n not all of that, but, uh, you know, the fact that it is fast-paced and it is hard, intense work on your feet, those things make it tough for everybody, even in a happy, good work environment. And th that kindness between coworkers it is what is necessary to turn that into something where everybody like, maybe you don't want to be there because it is work after all, but you at least like being around the people you're with. And uh, when people like being around the people they're with, they're more willing to be in a workspace. And I just, I don't know, I, it's something that I, you know, if in, in male dominated kitchens and male, when I'm in a kitchen and it's like me and six dudes, I, it is a responsibility to at the moment like there is a woman who is now in the workspace to be nice as shit to her so that she wants to keep that job and stay in the industry so that it is not always six men in the kitchen to I be don't clear know. nice and not a fucking creepy way yeah yeah yeah, yeah. like <laughs> that's be true nice not don't uh don't tip your fedora and be like oh excuse me my lady like like just like treat her like a normal ass person yes. like, if you have to do the like if you have to do the like mental gymnastics in your head to be like oh she's just one of the guys or whatever like which i would say is like not the not the best way to think about it but like whatever you have to do to like not treat her like the woman in the kitchen and more like just one of your other co-workers who happens to be a woman like do whatever you need to do to treat that person with the kindness and respect they deserve yes and the same thing for non-binary folks and trans folks in your workspace. Like every, I cannot harp this enough. Every workspace is toxic for them. Uh, and I will, I will <laughs> say I've read a thing about the the NB and trans people uh, stuff, saying that like one of the things that um, that happens with with their experience is that like. They, they are constantly assaulted by the fact that they don't match perfectly um, the sort of like expectations of the binary that exists. And so like one of the things that like, uh, like 
people people get like really in their own head about like um misgendering and like that kind of thing and like all that stuff and i will say like yeah you should pay attention to that you should do it like i'm not definitely not saying don't worry about it like that's not what i'm saying but what i am saying is like <laughs> it should it be should we be in a society where those people don't experience that and people just use whatever pronouns etc sure okay but we're not and recognizing that we aren't it is appreciated by almost every nb and trans person i've ever talked to that people try it all because so much of their life is people not trying at all like so just trying already puts you at a good level you don't have to get it perfect you don't have to feel like you know like if you misgender your new trans per, uh, colleague you should apologize you say oh i'm sorry yeah, like i didn't mean to they'll tell you it's fine they mean it because they appreciate that you're correcting yourself at all because most people don't uh the last the last story i want to share um i have a coworker who is kind of new to um I don't really know what the correct term for this would be, but I guess gender consciousness and, you know, and being aware of and respectful of and learning, he's learning to understand um, gender issues. And uh, he was telling me about going to a um, uh, target and he was returning an item and it was like he didn't have a receipt for it and it was kind of like he was worried about like it not not being him not being able to return it and so but at all it was super smooth not a problem at all he got his money back and so he said to the person working behind the counter like oh yeah that's my girl and then turned around and started to walk off and then like just caught him like like realized like and, and the, the person working behind the counter was pretty uh to his perspective looked like somebody who may be non-binary or like uh you know not may may not go by those pronouns and so he caught himself as he was walking away he just like stopped while he was walking away and like turned around he's like i'm sorry my person and really just meant it as like kind of a throwaway thing, like trying to like I, my person. And he said that they just lit up like a Christmas tree and like it just like changed their whole demeanor. And like they were like, the, you know, like they had smiled and waved at they did the customer service smile. of Oh, yeah, yeah. My, uh, OK, cool. You know, you're welcome. But then when he said that, it just they lit up and they were a whole like they were just like a whole different person. They were just really happy that he just stopped and was like, hey, my person. And then he walked off and he said, even at the moment, like in the moment, it didn't quite click to him. But it was like later on, he realized like, Oops, sorry, I bumped my mic there. Uh, that He realized just how much that meant to them, that that was that meant a lot to them, that that tiny little thing that he just oh caught and then said corrected himself and moved on about his day meant a lot to them and i think it's just realize the importance of your words and but not oh yeah as you said like it's not the end of the world when you make a mistake putting in the effort to care enough to correct yourself is it, it's just it, it it you don't build rome in a day yeah for sure.
so yeah uh anything else we want to add this week i think that's it uh you know try if, if you work in a place that has you know heavily gendered biased in in some way you know go out of your way to make sure that the people who aren't matching that expectation uh are treated with kindness honestly treat everyone with kindness like um but you know be ready to treat those people with a little bit of extra because they need it um <clears throat> They're likely dealing with a bunch of invisible stuff that you don't see, and just that little bit of extra care can can make a big difference. Life is too short and ends too suddenly to not be kind. Um, a plug for the week, the Red Dirt Collective Mutual Aid Fair is coming up on November. For some reason in my brain was just wanting to say March. November 20th. Um, yeah, it's going to be at Irving Middle School. Uh, if you're in the Oklahoma area, come out. We got all kinds of things going on. It's going to be awesome. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, we do one of these a season, just about. Uh, and uh, just tons of free stuff for people in need. Uh, we always can use more volunteers. We can always use um, more resources or donations. Uh, it gets bigger and bigger every time, it feels like. And uh, this one's no exception. It's going to be a good one. Um, so, yeah, come check it out. Come help out if you can. Uh, give if you can't. And if you can't give, totally understand. Don't feel bad about it. Thank you all for joining us. Uh, thank you, Philip, for joining me. Um, have a wonderful evening, afternoon, morning, or whatever time of day it is.